Right, design thinking. I put part one question mark. Um, what I was going to do was do a two two parter of kind of what is it and all the rest of it, and then some of the research. If you want me to go a bit deeper, I can. There's if you want me to go a bit deeper, I could spend my entire life on it. There's over five million studies looking at design thinking. So yeah, it could occupy the entire rest of my life just about if I went that, which I'm not going to do, but anyway. So um let's uh, let's get into this. What is design thinking? Um it's a, kind of a human-centered, a practical problem-solving approach, um, which has brought together kind of a, a large number of kind of design methods um, into a simple, as it says there, replicable framework. So the, f the first real design thinking framework uh, came out of Stanford uh, quite a few years ago. And since then, there's been a, a lot of iterations on it. And it's kind of settled down into a, depending on who you go with, whether it's a five or a seven stage process. Um, but what's interesting about design thinking is the kind of thinking behind it, if that makes sense. And the, the overarching principle of design thinking is this idea of human-centered design. It's putting humans right at the center of the design process rather than kind of the design process or, you know, kind of this idea of form over function. The idea is that it's putting the human at the centre and that it's working for the human beings. So out of the the research, there's been uh, like, like masses of it around design thinking, and there's a set of kind of principles that have emerged over the years really of, of human-centered design that has come out of this uh, out of this research, which is really kind of useful. So the first principle that kind of came out of all of this is this idea of empathy for users. So gaining a, a kind of a deep understanding of the user's experience, what they're going through, what it's what their needs are, what their challenges are, what it's like being them trying to do the thing that they're doing whatever that happens to be. So there's this big emphasis on empathy. And it's interesting because quite a few of the, the studies that aren't to do with design thinking, that are to do with kind of emotion regulation and things like empathy development, have found that actually having people engaged in design thinking develops empathy with the people who are doing it and can engage and can develop empathy across organizations. So organizations that are implementing design thinking, there tends to be a rise in empathy outside of the design process, which is an interesting kind of takeaway, I suppose, or reaction to it. The next principle is um, user involvement. So unlike a lot of design processes where the designers squirrel away and design something and then release a product, here the users are involved in the design process. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're brought in, so we get co-design processes, workshops, usability testing. There's a lot of testing involved in, in, in design thinking. 
but it's uh, but it's with the, the actual users and it's quite closely akin to things like agile so if you go into the the agile methodologies uh, and also the lean methodologies so there's a number of papers that are looking at the three of them together and finding that actually design thinking in both agile and lean improves the outcomes for agile and lean and that the three together becomes a really powerful kind of trinity and there's a few papers that have kind of uh, shown this the next main principle is uh, iterative design this idea of like kind of a cyclical approach that involves prototyping testing and refining which are the main three main parts of the, the process um, based on user feedback um, to eventually ensure, so it's this iterative process, to eventually ensure that the final product or service is as user-friendly as possible. Problem solving, um, which is the next, you know, obviously that's what it's there for, um, but it's about solving real-world problems faced by real users as opposed to kind of fulfilling spe technical specifications or going for the design, this idea of form over function, that actually it's not the form, it's not the function, it's both, but for the user, it's got to be usable and as easily usable as possible. And in terms of businesses, that it meets the business objectives of the business as well. So they're, they're kind of customized problem solving, if you were. And one of the other principles it's coming one of the other principles is this idea of multidisciplinary teams that they're bringing together diverse perspectives whilst they're engaged in the design process so from different fields so it's being used an awful lot in education um, so what we see there, for example, in higher education is we're getting people from psychology, design, anthropology, engineering, so that there's a more holistic approach to problem solving. And that's occurring in organizations as well. So we're starting to see kind of the rise of subject experts being brought in to help. And I, and I get this. I was involved in a, a process that I was um, doing around uncertainty. We brought together a like a really diverse group of people i showed them my research on um on uncertainty that i found about from a psychological point of view and from an organizational point of view and they then squirreled away and came back with a whole load of stuff from their discipline and one of the biggest breakthroughs actually came from a, a, a physicist who kind of looked at some of the problem solving stuff that i was doing about how people solve problems under situations of uncertainty and he just came back and said ah, it's all to do with energy and he completely transformed the way i was thinking about the whole thing because of this inter the, the interaction that i had with him around energy states and so he was talking about it from a physics point of view in terms of energy but when you start to translate it into human kind of energy states it started to make a whole load of difference and you just go, oh, wow. And it, it became transformative. So this idea of multidisciplinary teams becomes really important. And then the last main principle is this idea of accessibility, inclusivity. 
is that what you're trying to do is ensure that the design's as accessible and as inclusive as possible and catering to the, the, the needs of the real people who are going to be the users. So not the leaders, not the managers, unless they're the users. It's the actual people and the range of the people that are likely to be using it so that they get it and that it's not difficult for them to get it. So, you know, that, that what they're trying to do, it's a bit like Apple. Apple's a really good, um, you know, Apple, an, an iPhone does not come with a user manu manual. You don't need one. So design thinking was at the center of quite a lot of the things that Steve Jobs did. So there's quite a few papers around what was going on in Apple at the time and how they design things so that you don't need a manual. You don't need anything. It's intuitive. You can just push things and it'll happen. And that's where the design of the original iPhone came from out of a design thinking process. So in essence, design thinking really is about this idea of putting humans right at the center of, of and right at the center of the heart of the kind of innovation process and leading to products and services that are not just technologically sound, but kind of deeply resonate with the individuals themselves that, it, that, that they, it feels intuitive. You kind of look at it, you do it and you go, okay, I can do this. And people don't have, like a hard time with it. So what are the stages of, of design thinking? Now, let's say it, there's, a, there's an original Stanford process, but where it's kind of got to now, um, certainly in the last three or four years, is this seven-stage kind of process, and I'll, I'll quickly go through those. So the first stage is about defining the problem. And this is a skill set on its own. There's a whole there's a whole process around um, problem definition. How do you make sure that you're solving the right problem? And there's a company called IDEO, which you may or may not have heard of. They're quite famous. They do an awful lot around working out how to how do you work out what the actual problem is, not what people are presenting you. So because quite often what people think the problem is, is actually the set of symptoms. And I've done stuff already on here about this. So um, in fact, we'll let me just take a quick um, excursion and uh, we'll just stop that for a second. And we'll, uh, oh, they've got these new whiteboards. There. Right. Just hold on a second. I was lecturing at one of the universities today and Zoom's gone into these new whiteboards. Right. So, so this is based on some of the, the work around uncertainty. So if we have a timeline um, that's heading off into the future over here, what we know when we start to have a look at problems um, is that usually the point at which... Oops, point at which we notice the problem isn't the point at which the problem occurred. The problem always occurs at some point before what we notice. So what tends to happen, let me just uh, the thing here, we assume that what we're seeing is, a, is the problem. So if, for example, your car starts making a horrible noise. That usually, for most people, they take it into the garage and they say, my car's making a horrible noise. 
they assume that's the problem. The mechanic knows that actually it's not the problem at all. What it is, is a symptom of a problem. And it's the same if you go to the doctor with a stomach ache. They know that the, the stomach ache isn't the issue. The stomach ache is the symptom of the issue. So what happens in organizations, and this is the whole um, piece of uh, the, the series of studies that, that I did years ago, was that in organizations, they start assuming that what they're seeing is the problem when actually it's the symptoms. And what that means in effect is that the problem occurred at some time in the past. There's always, and I mean always a gap between a problem occurring and humans noticing it. Always. We never, like, it, the, the you know, you think about the financial crisis 2008, which I was involved in quite heavily, that the, the, the problem started to occur, like, going right back when you start to trace it right back, right back to the depression, actually. You know, you can see the, the seeds of that issue going back to then. And they all started to coalesce. And if you ever watched the, the film, The Big Short, you can see the people who got in front of the problem. They started to realize that there was a problem here before the rest of the market saw it. And they started to go out and interview people and gather data and things like that. And go back to this energy thing, right? What we discovered when we started to have a look at it was that what typically tends to happen is, firstly, organizations are solving the symptoms, not the problem. Then what they do is, as they start trying to work on solving the problem, the problem feels like it's getting worse. And this was the, the contribution of this um, the physicist. When we started to think in terms of, um, negative energy and this is and positive energy right and this was the one, uh, one of the breakthroughs he's saying what organizations typically are trying to do when you start to think about it is what they're they're trying to get back to the status quo how it was before the the symptoms but the problem they think is the problem before they started to occur and the reality is that's never going to happen. So it's kind of negative energy. And all they're trying to do is get back to how it was before. And that's what solving the problem often means in organizations. What we then started to have a look at was how do entrepreneurs solve problems? They're very different. And what entrepreneurs do is go, what's the situation? What's the context? What's really happening here? And what can I do with it? How, how can I capitalize on this situation? From these symptoms and the problems, I'm not, I'm solving this for somebody, but how can I capitalize on it? So it, it's a very different feel. They're not trying to get back to the status quo. They're actually trying to do something, which is this whole design thinking thing. And when you start thinking about that in terms of the way entrepreneurs react to a problem and the way quite a lot of people react to problems in organizations, the feel is very, very different. Very different. Any questions, comments, thoughts about this before I go back to the slides? I hadn't actually intended to do this.
David, just for clarity, did you say that by focusing on the problem, it accentuates it rather than focusing on the symptom? Yeah, what they tend to do is, so you've got a couple of options. Usually they're solving the symptoms, not the problem. They don't try to, because quite often it depends on how complex the symptoms are and how bad it is. But, you know, you think about something like the financial crisis, that's really complex. You're not going to solve that problem in the way that, you know, you've got this set of symptoms, but it's so ingrained that all they can do is contain it because it's it's social, it's cultural, it's set in the markets, it's the way we do capitalism. So all of the regulations that came out after 2008 were actually containment things. But what one or two banks did that weren't banks, so some of the new fintech things, they went, oh, hang on a minute, there's an opportunity here. And we suddenly start seeing all of these like Starling and Monzo and all these other banks starting to appear. And we start to see the arrival of things like um, the kinds of banks that are going on in India that for micro um, uh, micro entrepreneurs. So what they did is they like said, look, Okay, these are the symptoms. This is what's going on. This is the reality of the situation. And there's clever design thinking. What are the humans experiencing? And what can I do to ameliorate that? So we get this entrepreneurial thinking that's very different from this idea that the banks were going through of how do we get back to how it was before the crash? Totally different mindset and totally different energy. Does that answer the question? No. Yeah. David. Any other questions, comments, or thoughts about this? David, can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Hi, Keith. Hi there. Um, so if an organization, two things. If an organization does an organizational survey, for example, for the first time, is it baselining problem or baselining symptom? Usually symptoms. Okay. And in that yeah. case, then, if it continues with that sort of annual survey, is it then um, building on the symptom, rather, and or or potentially identifying a problem, which it then goes back to baseline? It depends on what they do with it. So, if they do another symptom check problem, like they do another survey, usually what they're doing is it's this a little bit further down the line to see how they've got on. What they haven't done, and, and this is this is the issue that we found, and, you know, there's a whole series of methods about, you know, critical incident analysis and things, is trying to actually get back and find out what the problem really is. You know, th there's a whole series of techniques for doing that. What we discovered when we started to have a look at the difference between the way entrepreneurs think and the way businesses, a lot of organizations think is a lot of organizations, some of them don't even realize that they're only dealing with the symptoms and they start trying to solve the symptoms. And as they're starting to solve them, at first, it feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse. So we get this kind of negative thing. We just want to get back to how it was. The organizations that really do some form of critical incident analysis or some other form of like what really is the problem here, the problem definition thing, what's really going on, that's A, time-consuming and and 
it takes a lot of resources quite often. Now, sometimes you've got to do that, and that's fine. That's that's not what we found that entrepreneurs were doing was this thing. They were going, I don't, I don't need to go back. This is the reality of these people's experience right now. How can I ameliorate that? And that's a completely different process. Now, that's not quite the same. So if you go to your doctor, that's, you know, you need that. You need them finding out, you know, that's why we have CAT scans and MRI scanners and all the rest of it, because we do need to backtrack and find out what the problem is, because you could die, right? But that's a very different thing than organizational problems. So some of those problems you may need to go back to. You may have a fundamental flaw in your strategy or something, and that's fine. But this distinction between the way entrepreneurs are viewing the world and the way organizations are viewing the world is that they're not separating out the types of, well, firstly, they're not separating out the symptoms from the problem, and then they're not separating out the the type of problem. So one of the things that we came across and that, which I'm, I'm kind of hesitating because it's kind of connected to a whole load of other stuff. But we we started categorizing problems into kind of three categories. So the first category were fatal problems. So if you don't solve this problem, your business is finished. Your organization is finished. Like this is going to end the organization. The second category of of problems are expensive problems if you don't solve this it's going to cost you may not finish the business but it's going to be blooming expensive right and then the third category of problems were problems that are cheap they're not expensive they're not fatal if you don't solve them maybe a bit costly but that's fine now you can start experimenting with them we did this for a slightly different reason but it it figures as well now it allows people then to start making decisions about because one of the things really unanticipated getting into all this one of the things that we discovered was that there's this call for people in organizations to be kind of more creative and deal with uncertainty better and things like that there's a whole series of issues and i'll run a session around this there's a whole series of issues with that but one of the problems is that organizations take away decision-making from people, right? You think about an organization, they're organized, and they're organized around five. There are five things that occur in organizations. There's a structure, there's the systems, the policies, procedures, and processes, right? Now, all of those are the things that make an organization organized, help people to know what they're doing, how to make decisions, what to make decisions about, okay? So when you go in in the morning, if you're an accountant, they're not likely to put you suddenly in marketing and say, come up with a creative ad, right? So we know what we're doing. We, and what those five things do is they, re, they, they create heuristics for decision-making. They say, these are the decisions that are yours, and this is how to make those decisions. That's what policy is about. And we're trying to make the decisions as safe as possible because organizations are trying to create as much certainty as possible. They want certainty of output in products and services so the customers know what they're getting. And they're getting as much certainty as possible in terms of profitability or outcome if they're not a profit-making organization. So what we 
what we did, <laughs> I've ended up going down a, a rabbit hole here. I hadn't actually anticipated going down. So Sorry, what man. we, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. What, what we discovered was that organizations weren't differentiating between the kinds of decisions that people were making and what they were doing was they were tightening down they were putting policies around stupid decisions that you know just so for example one of the universities i was looking at who shall remain nameless um it started to snow one day and suddenly hr came out with a snow policy and the snow policy basically said if it's snowing and you can get to work and you think you can get back then come to work if it's snowing and you think it's heavy and you're not going to be able to get to work or get back, then don't come to work. I was going, what? Why? Why is the point of this? It's like it doesn't do anything. When you start to have a look at a lot of the policies in organisations, they're they're great, they're important for the fatal types of decision, and they're certainly important for the expensive ones. And there's a rule of thumb is in the fatal ones and the, the the expensive ones, no one person should be making that decision. That should be a team effort, gathering as much data as possible because they're expensive or fatal. Beyond that, why are you put Because every time you put a policy in, what you're doing is you're pushing people more and more towards certainty and they become less and less likely to make decisions because you've scaffolded them. So what we're trying to do is give them enough stuff to play with to make decisions so that the organization gets used to failure. But that's that's a slightly different issue. Let's get back to design thinking. Sorry, I didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole. So just quickly, that those mm. those five, it sounds like McKinsey minus two. So which is the minus two? I see McKinsey's seven seven things. It's it, um... oh, I've got no idea. This is stuff that came out of my research, so I don't care about McKinsey's. Oh, okay. They make stuff up, up on the back of envelopes. So that's yeah, enough. So yeah, there's actually there's an interesting thing I'm following at the moment, which I'm hoping to do a session on shortly. There's a whole thing, you know, this whole thing about values again, another rabbit hole. There's this whole thing about values alignment in organisations. Yeah, it turns out that that's come from nowhere it was um it was some consultancies trying to sell some consultancy stuff and it's kind of caught on and i'm trying to backtrack and find out whether values alignment really is a thing and whether it does anything and try to strip through all the rubbish research and try to find some good research around it but that's a that's a different rabbit hole we'll get back there <laughs> some of the day right let's get back to design thinking right okay oops half past sorry right so the process is this, define, defining the problem. There's a whole thing around that. Uh, and we can do a whole session around just that. Um, doing the research, learning about the problem through collecting background information, observing users and, and things like that, really getting into, you know, what is this and how are people experiencing it and and what does the research say around it? So, so it's evidence-based. This idea of ideating, which involves doing things like brainstorming, coming up with ideas, and there's a whole skill set around that. And I'll show you in a minute. There's some interesting research around the competencies required for um, design thinking. Prototyping, 
this idea about building quick iterations, not, you know, they're, they're really kind of rough and ready stuff um, of potential solutions using really low cost materials and workmanship. They're not polished at all. They're not perfect. They're, you know, sellotape and, and string stuff um, that, and it, it's about speed, not about quality in the early stages for iterations. Then what you do is you go through a process of selection um, that involves choosing one of the solutions to pursue for the remainder of the process. So it's an evaluative process, but it's done with the users. Then an implementation phase where the solution is kind of fabricated and placed in the context of the problem space. So it's in the actual context that it's going to be used and it's tested there as, as the final form is designed around that space so where is this going to be used and by who and then then there's this whole process of of learning about using feedback on the solution reflecting on what happened through the whole design process and uh, and, and and whilst this isn't exactly that phase the the original kind of stanford school model um was really about how do designers learn on the job as it's happening and that's where the, the the Stanford School model came from, and the whole design thinking thing kind of kicked off, really. So, the studies on design thinking competencies, the kinds of skills, these are quite important. What's interesting is what I'm going to show you now is a a list of competencies that come out in the research. They look like they're in an odd order, but what the studies are showing is the kind of the importance of each of the types of competencies, how difficult they are to pick up correctly, I suppose, how highly skilled they are. So the first one is prototyping, creating early solution models. That's seen as the hardest thing, getting good, quick prototyping that are, that are very, very low cost. The next level of skill is ideation, learning to generate ideas without judgment without evaluating them first. So it's so if you've got into the creative problem-solving stuff, um, it's really generative stuff. Then defining, there's a whole skill set around problem statements, getting a good problem statement. And I'll say we can do a session just on that. Um, there's a, the next level of skill is around testing, how to how to run experiments, gather feedback. And then questioning and collecting information, this whole idea of empathizing. I find this interesting that it's so low down. I'm not sure why it's so low, because from my view anyway, empathizing is not exactly hard in a lot of organizations. Uh, not exactly high. Anyhow, exploring, empathizing, evaluating, and finally optimizing. So in order, these are considered. So this was this 2016 study um, saying, look, these are usually in order the, the hard from hard skills to easier skills to, to acquire around design thinking, and that these are the eight main competencies around that. Right. So very quickly, time's running on. I've got to do a quick research overview around design thinking as i say 
is over 5 million studies. So what I've done is I've chosen the studies from the last four or five years. Um, so kind of roughly about, you'll see the odd one creeping in, but roughly about 2019 onwards. Um, and, and what they're saying, I've brought them together into a couple of themes. So the first theme is the um, impact on innovation and performance in organizations. So the research really is showing that organizations that adopt design thinking really do enhance their innovation capabilities and overall performance. There's a whole load of studies around this. It's quite a big area of research and and particularly things like the emphasis that design thinking has on kind of user empathy, iterative prototyping and cross-functional collaboration makes a huge difference in organizations. It kind of catches on and we start to see this you know, hence the name design thinking, we start to see this thinking starting to spread across the organization and start to have better outcomes beyond the project with with other teams and things around um, innovation and around performance. The next clump of studies around the facilitation of cross-disciplinary uh, collaboration so one of the things that's starting to be shown in a lot of the studies is you, you, this whole siloization in organizations. Design thinking is quite a good way of starting to get the functions collaborating. They've got to. This whole idea of multidisciplinary teams, it really makes a difference in organizations. And that it design thinking projects and there's quite a few studies and these are just two of them here design thinking projects quite often act as a bridge between functions and departments and the way that they're working and thinking that last beyond the project they keep talking and and there's quite a lot and you, you the other thing that um and i can't remember which one of these studies it was i think it was a second one the 2023 study found that that there's this kind of cross pollination of uh, pollination of of ideas that continues after the project. Obviously, as you would expect, it kind of enhances problem solving skills. So there's quite a lot of evidence showing that in organisations, people are much more methodical. If design thinking is introduced in the organisation people become much more methodical about problem solving and they they you know they don't just go on what the boss says you know so just on a hunch or something or because he says or she says that's what they go with they're much more likely to go into a process um and and it's there's quite a few studies showing that this is particularly evident in more complex ambiguous problem spaces in organizations they're much more likely once they've learned about design thinking and they start to use it they're much more likely to reach for it in the you know kind of wicked problem space um that traditional kind of analytical approaches don't really do what they're meant to be doing huge improvement in user satisfaction engagement it's being used a lot in product design now an awful lot it's a big area it's also and and i hadn't quite realized this which i'm a little bit embarrassed about coming out of the educational sector it's huge in instructional design and education massive 
So they, they're developing entire courses and curricula using design thinking principles. You know, putting this, this, and it makes sense, you know, when you think about it, it's putting the human right at the center of it. And you go out, you go out to the people and say, what are you doing? What are your problems? Let's design a course to help you. Like rather than the way we do it, which is what's your expertise? What does your research say? Okay, can you design a course around that, please? You know, I'm kind of looking at this going, oh, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And and the other thing that's happened that these studies are showing and, and a whole cluster more is that the alignment between what the customer needs and what the product does or what the students need and what the education does is far superior, far superior. You know, it kind of gets the people in the process. And what that does, and, and there's a number of these studies, what that does is it increases user satisfaction, but it also increases, particularly in terms of products and learning, so courses in organized, uh, in universities, it also increases the client, the customer, the students' loyalty and their engagement, particularly if they've been involved in the design process. And that's quite big, and it's quite big for for design, uh, product design, and service design, rather than just scrolling away in a room on your own. Um, oops, there we go. Yeah, this whole contribution to educational outcomes, it's it promotes this slew of studies. How oh, I've not come across this stuff, I'm really embarrassed. So, um. It really promotes active learning. There's a lot of really good studies on how it promotes the type of learning, this active engagement in learning. It definitely promotes and develops critical thinking. Again, I'm really embarrassed about that because that's one of the things I teach. So, And it, what it does when you start to use design thinking, not just as part of the educational, the instructional design process, but in the classroom, you involve the students in design thinking for solving problems what it does also is it encourages greater collaboration amongst the students. And those collaborations, there's a couple of studies showing that those collaborations stay after they've used, after they've finished university. They stay in touch if they've been involved in design thinking projects in university. They stay in touch afterwards and they start collaborating across industries as well. And that's that's quite something. And so we get a more inquiry-based learning approach. Um, and it's being used increasingly in secondary schools as well, um, particularly in places like America, um, Germany, and this, I think it was Finland, I can't remember now. And then finally, and it's not finally, there's, as I say, there's a whole load more, but these are the kind of clusters that I kind of, kind of garnered from 5 million studies. I didn't read them all, obviously. Um, is the influence on organizational culture. There's a lot of evidence showing that adopting design thinking really does lead to cultural shifts within organizations. It kind of promotes openness to experimentation, kind of tolerance for failure. That's a biggie. There's quite a lot of studies showing how design thinking being brought into an organization uh, increases that tolerance and reduces kind of blame culture. So the, some of the things that we've talked about in previous sessions around just culture and things like that. Um, and kind of a, a more proactive stance, um, kind of a proactive mindset towards learning and innovation. So it promotes much more 
um, learning-oriented organization. And that's big. That is huge. You know, on its own for me, if you've got something that's going to promote a learning orientation across an organization, then it's a winner. Um, and and then again, coming back to the whole lean and agile thing, what's been found is desi design thinking really promotes agility um, and flexibility within organizations. And you, you, there's a there's a couple of interesting studies showing that people tend to defend their ideas less. Um, so, uh, particularly senior managers, uh, it puts them in a place where there was a couple of interesting studies looking at the effect of design thinking, even though they weren't the leaders, and managers weren't involved in the design thinking projects. That the people in the organisations are much more likely to push back at the the leaders and say, "Hang on a minute, where's your evidence for that decision?" And that's culture changing stuff. Right. So I open it out. It's all yours. Questions, comments, thoughts, or experiences. I know there's people here with quite a lot of experience of design thinking. Just to share a story. Uh... David, in relation to the interdisciplinary, the value of interdisciplinary engagement um, at the University of Galway here where I live, I've been involved for 12 years now on a, a one-year master's programme in medical device innovation where three teams of four people are brought together annually uh, and each team of four has a doctor, an engineer, an MBA and a another and, and, and they're they study a, a, a disease state, so cardiology or whatever, uh, over a period of weeks. And then they follow a cardiologist for a couple of months. Uh, and in that time, they're invited just to observe uh, needs in the process. You know, they're not invited to come with great ideas, but they're invited to discover great ideas by observation. So that process has its roots in, in Stanford, the Stanford biodesign process. But uh, but the outputs from that have been extraordinary. Uh, and their outputs that wouldn't have been brought about by experts at the, at the top of the system, rather people thinking together lower down in the system and working with users and so forth. Beautiful. Yeah, really nice. And in fact, that whole thing about experts. So I was running a, a, a series of workshops yesterday around, around uncertainty, and there's a game that I play around chess. And um, one of the things that it shows very, very clearly to people in organisations is that when things start to change, the experts become the problem quite often because they're the, the it, it's harder for them to shift their thinking out of their schemas because the schemas are so well set. Yeah, nice. Yeah, thanks, Now, Just, uh, I'll drop a link. We're recruiting for that program at the moment for next year. So the event that anybody knows, an engineer or a doctor looking for an interesting master's opportunity, uh, I, I just dropped a link to the Bio, uh, Bio Innovate LinkedIn page there. Nice. Thanks, Niall. That's, uh, I'll share it amongst my students as well. So I get some interest there. Brilliant. Any other comments, thoughts, questions? We've got about 12 minutes left.
Hi, Tony. Now, you're not on mute, but we can't hear you. There's nothing. No, we can see your lips moving, but no sound. Do you want to put it in the chat? <laughs> Stick it in the chat, mate. <laughs> so, right. Laura, I think you've just... Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yep. <laughs> um, just picking up on your point there about the experts, that kind of trained in capacity thing that we get into. Um, is there any have there been any studies that actually look at training us to become more transdisciplinary in our thinking so that we become more expert in our ability to do this or is this where the overlap with design thinking is 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 you know is that have there been any studies that look at that like equipping us to be able to cope with uncertainty that kind of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary idea and design thinking, where they all come together to help us navigate a new future. Has there been yeah. any kind of study in that in that space? Um, and also, there's, could we have links to your study that you did on uncertainty as well, please? Yeah, there's a whole series of those. So I'll do a session actually on on the the work that I've done, and we'll play the chess game actually because that's quite instructive. It's uh, it's good fun as we found out yesterday. So. In fact, the longest I've had, I was telling them yesterday, the longest I've had the, the chess game running before they solved the problem was three whole days. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it, I didn't say this and you didn't hear this from me. It was the entire hierarchy of our Royal Air Force. Because they're all public school and they're, they are all chess experts. They know what they're doing with chess. So as so, soon as you change the rules, they're buggered. Yeah, <laughs> which is bizarre. Anyhow, right. <laughs> David, is my microphone working now? Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Switching. I think the question is how much of the design thinking is around what the problem is as opposed to what it could be um, and, and trying to sort of spend time thinking about all right well we don't know what we don't know sometimes do, do we and uh and, and often just, just trying to highlight issues that could happen down the line and being ahead yeah. of the game maybe. yeah so so there's a couple of things as i say we could run a, in fact we might do this um we could run a whole thing around problem definition there's a definite set of skills around it and there's a definite way of kind of thinking about it because if you've got the definition right then you're on a winner and you're not just solving the, the, the symptoms. The, the thing that you've just said there is really important. I don't know. Getting people to the place of, I don't know what's going on here, rather than thinking they do know what's going on, they do know what the problem is, is the probably, from my perspective anyway, and it's certainly from an uncertainty perspective, is getting people into the into the space of uncertainty. I don't know what's going on. Once we're there, then people become more curious and more inquiring. And and there are going to be gaps. There are going to be times when we really don't know what the problem is. But that requires exploration. What happens in organisations is people. The trouble is people tend to be paid for their expertise. And they have an identity with it. 
So they have an identity as a leader, a manager, and it's my job to solve all these problems, my job to know. And, you know, it takes a brave leader to stand up and say, I haven't got the foggiest what's going on here. A very brave person. It's a a developmental stretch from that mindset of independent achievement to inter or interdependent collaboration or inter-independent collaboration, maybe as a better descriptor of it. And I think there's something about the the safety in the social system that 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 makes it safe for people to say, "Well, look, I've got one piece of the jigsaw, but I I don't know." Um, so it's difficult to to create that safety and trust in a system where it people is. can be vulnerable enough, you know. Yeah, and particularly where people are, you know, they've got status. They have an identity within the organisation as a leader, as a whatever it happens to be, and and in fact, this one of the participants yesterday said, "Like failure is really difficult. I really don't want to fail in front of my manager." And you go, "Yeah, okay. So what are the consequences of that?" And he was quite honest. He says the consequences are if I can't solve it, I cover it up. But you go. It's like, but it's true, you know. It just becomes a non-problem because I don't understand it. Rather than it's coming out, yeah, yeah, and it's getting them into that state. Yeah, cool. Thanks, now. Any other comments, Laura? I'm not sure I answered your question about all of the research. There are some studies. I haven't gone into them that that bring all of those things together. I know it from kind of my stuff. I'll run some workshops on on some of the stuff rather than sending you papers because you know if you don't want those, they're horrible. Um, but that's what we're here for. See, I should do it on my own stuff, really. Um, so yeah, there is some stuff. We'll dig it out. I think this is a an area for some fruitful investigations. This is why I put part one. I start to think actually, this this is this is bigger and more important than I kind of I at first realised, and it's connected to a whole load more stuff than I realised as well. To be quite frank, yeah. Any other comments, thoughts, questions? So um, are there specific areas of research on the either the competencies or like you know like defining the problem? Which, you know um, that seems to be the big one, really getting people to stay in that space of trying to define the problem. Yeah, it's it's a huge area. In fact, if I go, I've got one of the. I don't know, shut it down. Hang on. I had one of the research databases open. I just go into solo. Hold on. Um, sorry, Solo's the uh, Oxford University um, library system. Um, right, let me just have a look. Uh, so if I go in there and look at... <laughs> okay, so as soon as I put in problem definition in parentheses, we've got, well, 34,200, so over 34,000 studies since 2020 so i've put a, a time limit on that if i do any right let me open that out <laughs> okay 353,000 studies in all time 
Um, let me just have a look at... Actually, I'll tell you what would be interesting. Let me just see if there's a systematic review. That would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Ah, that is interesting. This, sorry, I talked to myself here. Because <laughs> you can't see what I'm seeing. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of research around problem definition. And there's no, this is really interesting from my point of view, there's no systematic reviews. Hmm. I think we need to start one. So just another little project to add to the pile. So, yeah, but there needs to be one. Um, but I can't find any systematic reviews for problem definition at the moment. But that's a really quick look. I need to go into Solo a bit deeper. So, yeah, so there is. And I think it's something that we could we could do a session around, definitely. Um, I'm interested enough now to go, okay, what's all this stuff saying? And as you say, rightly say, it's like right at the start of all of this, and it hooks back to some of the research I was doing 15, 20 years ago. So it'd be quite nice to dust some of that off. Yeah, great. Anybody it's else? really interesting when you look at problem definition, David, to actually see um, how you do that in that short period of time, because I think that's the biggest issue. I think a lot of people are really thinking about design thinking now but you know obviously in the field of learning and elsewhere but yeah. they don't feel they've got the time to do it justice and therefore they feel that they can't do it at all as a result of that and yet there are so yeah. many benefits so it'd be really interesting to see yeah you know the how people are overcoming the barriers to design thinking and and this first stage i think is probably the biggest most most significant barrier Yes, I think so. And in fact, it, it, it as you're talking, this this equates with another issue that I'm kind of kind of thinking about, struggling with. It's one of my kind of side, you know. That I think I mentioned if if you did the um, personal knowledge management course. So one of the things that I've got is I've got so twelve problems. I always have twelve questions that I'm working on that I write down and I kind of carry in my wallet, you know, just to think about. I've got. You know, and one of them actually is that same, almost that same question about evidence-based practice. How do you get organisations engaged in it? Because usually they go, "Oh my God, that's too much work," and and so it's the same issue, uh, I think, underlying. So yeah, that'll be a good one. That that sits with one of my twelve problems. Yeah, very nice. So we, yeah, we'll definitely do something around that. I'll go off and squirrel away and see what I can find. Cool. Thanks, Laura. Before we end, Niall, I've sent you a direct message. If you could pick up what I've picked up. I got that, okay. Kate. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I should have said it's a paid master's, which makes it additionally attractive. I think that's probably the only way to do a master's, really, is to get paid to do it. What do you think? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like a good one. Yeah. Somebody else might hear might like to do it. I don't know. <laughs> paid master's. Never heard of such a thing. <laughs> That's really cool. Anything else? Any other comments, questions, thoughts? Um, don't know if it helps a little bit. I've seen something called a challenge circle. So it works quite well. Okay. 
which essentially is to sort of start the environment of getting people talking and communicating in a way across cross silos sort of thing to actually understand the resource and perspectives that can come from other areas that they didn't understand mostly because they haven't had time put aside to have these conversations um if you like we can take that offline um as a but if that's one of the questions i can help you with on your 12. <laughs> oh great yeah <laughs> yeah so and, and it's called the say that again that it's just the concept of a challenge circle essentially you put a bunch of people in a circle inside with a problem uh and then outside is everyone else uh and then you give them a quick round to oh. to have all the different people on the outside of the circle giving a perspective on what your problem challenge is uh, and then they go off to the next one then the next one then the next one so oh, it's that's interesting the conversation it brings it alive the sense mm. of uh, um, just instigating this process of creating that environment. Uh, part, part of the thing is you're saying you don't know where to start. Well, at least start with just creating an opportunity for people to talk to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk, and uh, because that will sit with that. We'll we'll do a whole thing around problem definition and stuff. And that's that's this that's ringing a bell with another process, and I can't recall the name of it. It's it's not action learning, but it's closely allied to action learning sets that's it so action learning sets work very similar to that yeah oh cool great that's it nine o'clock have a great day see you soon thank you thanks everyone thanks so cheers bye